So at this point, you can grab your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. And uh, there should be um, a bookmark there that gets you to Acts. If not, I think it's around page 900, like 930, 960, something like that. So um, but anyway, Acts 20 is where we are going to be. As you're turning there, I would like to thank our hospitality team. Um, they come and they're early and they come to set up and to um, clean up and to greet us at the door and to welcome us and to answer questions and to generally just try and make this place feel like home. Um, I think that anybody who has been a part of CF for an extended period of time, the reason you have been part of this church, one of the many reasons is uh, the community feeling, the family feeling, the engagement uh, that we have developed here, and that a large part of that has to do with our hospitality team. So, um, so thank you to everybody that serves on that team. If that's something that interests you, it is um, being able to, to come and um, greet people and spend to answer questions and just generally um, kind of help create a space of family and rest in this place, if that's something that kind of speaks to your heart and you want to get involved, that's a great place to do it. That's a great place to get to know a lot of people because everybody walks in, you got to greet everybody. So um, if you are looking for a place to invest and get involved, we'd love to have you on the hospitality team. You can use those connect cards that I talked about earlier. You could circle hospitality on the back um, and put your name on it and leave it in the offering basket in the back and we will get you connected with Monica so that you can get um, figure out what that looks like and, and get trained and get in the schedule. So we'd love to get you plugged in and connected in that way. Um, so Acts 20, like I said, is where we're going to be this morning. There is um, a musical called Hamilton. It was a big deal a couple years ago. And so in it, uh, there is a, a song between um, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton in which Washington tells Hamilton, uh, I'm not going to run for re-election. I, I'm, I'm done being president. I'm not going to try and be president any longer. And Hamilton says, I'm sorry, what? And they go back and forth, and, and Washington is trying to tell Hamilton, these are the things I want to focus on, these are the policies and the ideas I want to focus on before my time as president is over. In the beginning of the song, Hamilton is trying to convince Washington, no, you can stay on, you can keep serving, you can stay, please don't go. And finally, Hamilton asks, why do you have to say goodbye? Why do you have to leave us? Why do you have to stop leading this country? And Washington responds, and he says, if, if I say goodbye, the nation learns to move on, and it outlives me when I'm gone. And so the rest of this song is we're going to teach them how to say goodbye. We're going to teach them how to transition leadership. We're going to teach them how to move forward when the main focus, Washington at this point, right, you know your American history. After we get our independence, Washington is the guy. He's leading this country for a long time as president, and finally he steps aside. And the nation had to learn how to switch and how to go from one leader to the next and had to learn how to move on even though the person that they most identified with leadership, the person they most looked to for guidance was gone. In today's passage, we see this happen in the church in Ephesus. We see a bit of a different side of the Apostle Paul than what we've been accustomed to in the book of Acts. This passage we're going to look at this morning is actually the only time in the book of Acts in which uh, the group that is being addressed are all Christians. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul is usually in evangelist mode. He's sharing the good news. He's teaching and reasoning in the synagogues regarding the gospel. Or he's standing before some authority figure, whether it's the Sanhedrin or the Romans. He's defending himself and the ministry and the way and the gospel, but he's never really only speaking to Christians. But here... In this passage this morning, he isn't Paul the evangelist, and he isn't Paul the apologetic. He's Pastor Paul. He's speaking to these leaders of the church who he has been with for three years. With, he had spent more time in the church of Ephesus than anyone and anywhere else he had gone. He spent most of his time here. He has a heart and love and deep relationship with these people. In verse 16, we see that Paul is traveling. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. We talked briefly last week about how from this point on, he's ultimately, Paul wants to go to Rome. Paul wants to get, uh, to get a, a, a chance to speak to Caesar. But on the way, he's right now uh, going to Jerusalem. He wants to get to Jerusalem, it says in verse 16, by the time of the celebration of Pentecost. So he's trying, he's, the days are slipping away, he's trying to travel and get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and so he doesn't want to travel through Asia and go to Ephesus again, he wants to keep going through. 
And the reason he doesn't, I think, the reason he doesn't want to go back to Ephesus, the reason he avoids that city is because, like I said, he's on the clock. He's only got so many days to get to Jerusalem by the celebration. And he knows that if he goes to Ephesus, because of the relationships, because of the heart, because of the way they love him and he loves them, he would get stuck in what we know as the Midwest goodbye, right? Like, he would get stuck there and people wouldn't want to let him leave, Like right? You go to a party, you hang out with your friends, you say goodbye, you put your coat on, and then like 30 minutes later, you actually leave, right? The Midwest goodbye, you guys don't know this? Yeah, we know the good, yeah, Okay. Paul is stuck, and he says, I'm not going back to Ephesus. If I go there, I'm never going to make it to Jerusalem in time. But instead, he calls them to another city and meets with them. Instead, he has this out-of-town meeting with the elders of the Ephesian church. And in this address, he focuses on the past, the ways that he has served and led. He focuses on the present, where his heart and mind and spirit is. And he focuses on the future, what is coming for them as he transitions, knowing he's never going to see them again. And so this idea of the past and the present and the future, these are going to be our anchor points for this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump into Acts chapter 20. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for this chance to gather and to enjoy your presence, to enjoy your word, to enjoy this opportunity even in prayer to speak with you to fellowship together, to encourage one another, to be together. God, we pray for the kids of Grace Place as they are upstairs, and we pray that you would continue and and that you would speak to them and reveal yourself to them. We pray for the leaders of Grace Place that you would give them an extra dose of energy and patience and joy this morning as they spend time teaching the kids of this church about how much you love them, how good you are, how faithful you are. And God, as we pray for the kids of this church, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them and save them in an early age. God, we we on this Sunday, this Sanctity of Life Sunday, we pray, God, every life is special and important. You have made all people. You are, you have made all people in your image and likeness. Every life is sacred to you, Christian or not. We are yours. You have formed us. You have shaped us before anything. You knew us. God, on a day like today where we remember and we, we think about how precious and important life is, God, we lift up those who have lost life, lost lives of, of young ones. We, lo- we, we lift up those places in this country, in this world, where life is taken for granted, the creation of life is taken for granted. God, we ask that you would move in these places, that you would change hearts. God, we ask for you to do work in the hearts and minds of people of, in authority, that they would come to see and know just how special, how fragile life is and how important it is to you. God, we thank you for the gift of families, for the gift of children. They are a blessing. And Lord, for those who are struggling, who long to be a mom or a dad and are struggling with that, God, days like today, we pray for them and we lift them up and we remind them that they walk through that season not alone, but with you. And Lord, we ask that you be who you are. Be the God of comfort. Be the God of encouragement. Be the God, be the dad that you are. Remind them that you are with them and for them. Remind them that you see them, that you know their struggles. You know the heartache. You know the pain. Be that comfort. Be that healing, safe, resting place. God, as we open your word today, we ask for clarity. We ask for the places that and the things we can't see that you would show them to us, for the things that we can't understand that you would reveal them to us, for the things that we have trouble believing that you would help us to believe. Help us to hear, and not just hear, but respond to your word this morning. 
God, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Acts chapter 20, we're going to start in verse 17, and then we'll go back and pick it apart. Now with Miletus, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews, to Greeks, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to, all, to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Past, present, and future. That's, that's our, our anchor points for this morning. And so Paul begins, and he calls these elders together. He has them meet them in a town, like I said, outside of Ephesus, about 30 miles south in a town called Miletus. He doesn't call any, everyone, though. He doesn't call the whole church to come visit him. He calls specifically the elders. In this whole passage, in these verses that we just read, Paul uses many different words to refer to the same group. He calls them elders, presbyters. Verse 28, he calls them overseers, which is where the word in the Greek is where we get our word for bishop. And also in verse 28, he says, care for the flock before you. And that's the, the verb to care is to feed, to shepherd. He's basically telling them, shepherd these people. Elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor, these things are all interchangeable in the New Testament. They are the leaders of the church. And when we say leaders of the church, at this point, the group is so big, they aren't meeting, they don't have a big meeting place like we do. They were meeting mostly in house churches. And so when he calls these elders, he's calling together the, the leaders of these house churches, multiple ones in different places, and they are serving together. So this passage is Paul addressing these leaders of the church, these leaders of these house churches, all coming together to lead one unified body that meets in different places. And so he addresses the, the leaders and this whole passage is directed at them and is really for them. And so I know some of you might read that and hear that and say, okay, well, I'm not an elder. I don't have any plans to be an elder or I'm not qualified to be an elder, so why do I have to listen? Why does this matter? What well, matters for the same reason that when you're single, you don't skip the marriage verses in the Bible or the fact that just because you are no longer under the law, you don't just ignore the Old Testament. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he tells him, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is helpful. All of it is revealing the character and will of God to us. 
Also, you are part of the Big C Universal Church, and you are either a member at this church or at some point will be a member of a church. And if you're going to be under the leadership in a church, you should probably know what biblical leadership actually looks like, right? We are one body, one unified collective body of Christ. It is all of our responsibility then when we see the leadership of the church working and functioning in the way it should be in line with scripture to celebrate and, and affirm that. And when something is out of whack, when leadership is stepping outside of the bounds of scripture and outside of what scripture is calling them to, that we as the body, whether or not you are in a position of authority, to call that out, to address that, and to bring that to the front. But again, in order to do that, we got to learn what scripture actually says about leadership. In a sense, this morning, uh, as we examine some, not all of what it means to be an elder in a church or a leader in the church, we are putting to a degree our own leadership, current and future, kind of under the microscope. People choose churches for a variety of different reasons. My hope is that, and I don't think it's always the case, but my hope is at the top of that list should be the character and leaders within that church. Can you submit to them? Can you follow them as they lead the church? This passage is a pastor sharing his heart and his joy and his passions and his burdens for these people. He tells these elders, this is what I have done, this is how I've done it, and now it is your turn to go and carry that on. And so he starts with the past in verse 18. He says, you know how I lived. I think it's telling that Paul's very first point in addressing these leaders has to do with character. He didn't start with, you know the kind of show I put on. You know the kind of business plan I put together. You know the kind of events that I hosted. He says, you know how I lived. You know me. With all humility, with tears, in good and bad, you know me. Paul was with them, as I said, for three years at that point. He didn't hide from the community. He didn't avoid the people. He was with them. He engaged with them. He lived among them. They were invested in his life. He was invested in theirs. Much is often made, rightly so, of the imagery of pastors as shepherds. Paul does it here. And one of the things about shepherds is that shepherds lived with the sheep. They slept out in the fields out in the wild with their flock. Being a shepherd was not a nine-to-five gig. It wasn't, okay, I'm done. It's the end of the day. I'm going to go home. If you were a shepherd tending your flock, when the day was over, you laid down with the sheep. You were basically a nomad. Your primary company was your flock, which inevitably led to shepherds smelling like sheep. They smelled like the wild. They smelled like they'd been living outside because they had. They were so connected to their flock, the flock was literally rubbing off on them. So it should be for the leaders of a church that they are connected to a church body in such a way where the people rub off on the leader and vice versa, where the people are invested and engaged, they are connected together. Elders are to engage with the community. They have been called to lead, to be invested in their lives. Not only does it make people feel loved and cared for, but it gives the people a chance to truly know the character of the elders. Specifically, when it comes to CF, if you don't know Daniel and Dave and Wayne or myself, if you don't really know them personally, you don't know their character and their heart, why? We're a small enough church. It's not like it's hard to find them. They're not going to get lost in this crowd. If you want to know them, if you want to be known by them, like any other relationship, maybe you got to take the first step. Maybe you got to make the first move. Maybe you need to grab them after a service and set up a time to get coffee or to bring over dinner to their house and spend some time with them and their family. They, like you, have families and jobs and things pulling at them for attention. So I encourage you, pull them aside, send them an email, be intentional to get connected with them because you will be blessed and benefit from having them in your lives, from knowing them on a deeper, on a deeper basis. In verse 19, Paul says confidently, he says, You know how I lived. You were with me. You know that I was serving all the time. Who? Who is he serving in verse 19? Serving the Lord, no trick questions, with all humility and with tears and trials. 
Paul says it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always smooth, but he served with humility. He served with tears. He wasn't interested in acquiring power and money and notoriety, but rather his goal and drive was to serve the Lord by serving the Lord's church. Even when he had to deal with the opposition and plots on his life from the temple leadership, at no point did he shrink from what he was called to do. In verse 20, Paul was always going to declare, proclaim, teach, and teach, engage in conversation that which was profitable for God by God for living. He was going to teach it and proclaim it, and then he was also going to go one-on-one, and he was going to have conversations, or small groups and have conversations. It didn't matter if it was in public or in a more intimate, private setting. It didn't matter if he was in the temple or house-to-house. It didn't matter if the people listening to him were Jews or Greeks or both. Paul was always going to preach the same message. Regardless of who the audience was, his message stayed the same. Repent from your sin, turn to God, and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've seen him, if you've been with us as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen Paul take different avenues to do that, use different styles or different language, but the heart and core of the message has never wavered. Jesus and him crucified and risen again. Paul preached that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He called people to admit their need for a Savior, believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for their sins, and choose for him to be their Lord and Savior. He proclaimed the gospel at every turn in every possible way. Paul did not water down his message nor his faith in Jesus depending on the audience. Paul had been transformed by the gospel. He had been given a new heart and a new mind. Paul was taken from death to life, from enemy of God to son of God, from helpless and hopeless and lost to redeemed and chosen and accepted. He wanted at one point to tear down and wipe out the Christians, and instead he has become a church planter and proclaiming the gospel in every possible way. Paul knew who he was. Paul knew what he was capable of. Paul knew what he had done. He knew the darkness of his heart, but he also knew the grace, mercy, and forgiveness given to him through Jesus. And he was never going to minimize or downplay what God had done in him and for him and through him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle at times being the same person in every setting, in every situation, right? We're varying degrees of ourselves at work, with our family, with our friends, when we're running errands, when we're alone with our own thoughts. The same is probably true when it comes to our faith. Right? Sunday mornings, 10.30 to 11.45, we sing the songs, we read the word, we pray the prayers, we eat the bread and drink the cup. we got nothing to hide, nothing to shrink back from, right? This is safe space. But the rest of the week, maybe we tuck that Christianity back away. Right? Nobody, nobody needs to hear that. Nobody wants to see that. It's my personal walk with God. I can't bring it up at work. My family doesn't want to hear about it. My friends might think I'm strange. I'm just trying to get through this Uber ride with as little interaction as possible. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I worked at Apple for a few months. And... They're hiring, they intentionally hire as diverse of a crowd as they possibly can. All kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life. And I remember after a few weeks of being there and starting to get to know some people, I remember being in the, being in the, uh, the restroom and, and being, being in the back and, and I, I heard somebody talking and, and they mentioned a Christian rapper that I listened to. And my ears kind of picked up a little bit. Somebody else had mentioned, later that same day actually, somebody else had mentioned that they had to go to their life group that night. Eventually, I asked one of them um, what church they went to. Like, I just kind of took a step and said, are you a Christian? Like, what? I think you go to church. What church do you go to? And they looked at me a little shocked. And I told them, yes, I too am a Christian. It was like this, like, secret door had been opened. And very quickly, I realized that in this group of people, that I worked with, I was working shoulder to shoulder with like multiple church planters and worship leaders and Bible study leaders. Like there was a bunch of us, but very few of us actually knew that because for whatever reason, we felt like we needed to keep that part of us in the shadows. We need to downplay that part of us. If someone looked at how you spent your time, 
how you spent your money, how you spoke, how you lived your life, would it give them enough intrigue to think you might be a Christian? When it came to Paul, there was no doubt, no wondering needed. He was going to make it known. He was going to make sure you knew where he stood. Paul was who he was, and it didn't matter the setting nor the audience. He was set on seeing God glorified and proclaimed through his life because he knew what the gospel meant to him. He knew what the gospel had done for him. He revisits this this idea in, in the end of the passage in verse 31 when he reminds the group that he didn't take days off. There was no off duty time for Paul in regards to his reputation and proclamation of the gospel and care for people. He never stopped loving and praying and serving them, even and especially with tears. This is not a revelation. We all know life is hard. We know life can be ugly and overwhelming, and to live is to experience loss and grief and sadness. And I know some of you are holding out hope that as we're going through these verses to memorize these verses, that one of these weeks you're going to come in and we're going to memorize John 11.35. And even though it does inform us that Jesus himself felt deep sadness and bitterness, we're not going to memorize that one. So you can just do that one on your own. It is in the sadness and the grief through the tears when elders have the unique opportunity and privilege to step in and truly connect and care and love one another. It is often through the experiences, the high, experiencing the highest of highs and the lowest of lows together that we build and strengthen our relationships. As elders, we get the asked to enter into some of the most extreme highs and lows. Church leaders get to enter into hospital rooms both to pray over the birth of newborn babies and to sit and weep and pray for a miracle and pray for God to move in a certain way with just the sound of a ventilator to fill the awkward gaps of conversation. We get asked to step in and mediate broken marriages, but we also get asked to officiate new ones. I remember a few months into being here, I, I, I've been here maybe three or four months, and I remember having a week where I had a, a bunch of meetings with a bunch of different church members lined up, and, and it was just a variety of different things, and most of them were people telling me things that they were struggling with, things that they were wrestling with. And I remember getting to the end of that week, and I was wiped. I was just exhausted and weighed down with grief from the things that people were struggling with and people were, were sharing with me. But as I thought about it that weekend, I remember just being overcome with joy because I realized that the fact that I had a week like that and I had these meetings meant that people were allowing me into their lives. They were allowing me to pastor them. They were allowing me into some of the serious moments and areas of their lives, and I was blessed to be invited in. Let me tell you, as elders and church leaders, we do not take for granted these invitations into those spaces. To be allowed to rejoice with those celebrating and grieve and mourn and cry with those who are grieving and mourning and crying is sacred space, and we hold on to that privilege delicately. Paul knew firsthand to lead people in this way, in this role, meant tears were going to be involved. He doesn't complain about this reality. He doesn't blame them or resent them for it because he loved them. You don't put yourself in this position. You don't endure and press on for someone else if you are not motivated by love, a desire to truly care and serve for another person, even if that means you take on their grief and you suffer on their behalf. Christ emulates it. Christ showed us what that looks like because it was love that sent him to the cross. It was love and compassion for us that allows him to go to the cross and suffer and die for us. He knew what was coming. In the garden, he asks for it to be taken from him, but he willingly goes knowing full well what was coming for him because of his love and compassion for us. I ask our elders every year before we put them up for nomination or for voting whether or not they want to be nominated, whether or not they feel they want the role of elder. Because if someone is serving as an elder, not just out of duty, just out of obligation, just because this is what I have to do, or because They're just excited that they got asked. Oh, somebody wants me in leadership. I'm going to say yes. If those are the motivations, then the weight of this role will crush them into powder. At a certain point, you got to want the job. 
you got to want to be in that spot, not for the fame or the power, but because you have a deep sense of love and compassion for the people you serve. Because without it, you will be overwhelmed. Paul speaks about how he lived and served, not trying to build up his own reputation or bank account. He wasn't ever interested in influence and money. Instead, working with his hands, applying his trade so that he wouldn't be a burden financially. And more than just not being a burden, Paul reminds them that in all that he had done, he wanted to show them what it means to live by the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. In serving them with his life, in serving them with his teaching, in working hard and with all of himself and all that he did, with his honesty, with his vulnerability in the good and the bad, Paul wanted to give rather than receive. This phrase there is quoted from Jesus here in, and uh, does anyone know where that reference comes from, where he quotes Jesus there? Does anybody know that reference off the top of your heads? You shouldn't, because it doesn't appear in the Gospels anywhere. Trick question. I did give you one trick question. As John writes at the end of the Gospel, of his Gospel, Jesus did and obviously said many, many more things than were recorded in the Gospels. He is not a character who only lives in the confines of the covers of your Bible. He lived a full and complete life, and so he said and did things that aren't recorded for us. But this sentiment, it is more blessed to give than to receive, echoes much of what Jesus did say that is recorded in the gospel, specifically places like Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why does Paul spend time remembering his time with these elders. Don't they know what he went through? They were there, like he says. Why does he spend so much time here? Because he says in verse 25, Paul believes he's never going to see these people again face to face. He will obviously correspond with them. We have the letter he writes to the church in Ephesus, but Paul has no plan to go back to this area. His plan here is he's going to go on what he thinks is going to be a short trip to Jerusalem, and then he's going to head to Rome and set up base there. And so he's telling these leaders here, here's what I did. Here's how I led. Remember and do likewise. Now he's not saying look at me rather than look at Christ or follow me rather than follow Christ, but rather he is saying, and he tells, as he tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Elders are to be the kind of people worth following, the kind of people who, are, who, know, to, the kind of people who know that they serve a God who is worth dying for who believe a gospel that is worth being changed for, and they live a life worth imitating. Jeremy Ryan writes about this role of elders in his book, and he says, a church should be able to direct a newborn believer to an elder and say, do you want to know what a real Christian should look like? Then look at him. To put it another way, an elder's job involves shepherding by being as well as by doing. Elders pastor churches not only by what they do, but also by who they are. And without the being the doing falls apart. Find someone who is following Christ and follow them. Learn from them. You have the opportunity, you have people in this church who are, have been doing it longer than you. Go ask questions. Go approach an elder and say, I see things, I just want to learn. I know I've, I've talked about this before. I've had the benefit throughout my life of being in relationship with a bunch of different people, youth leaders and church leaders and elders and, and professors who have allowed me just into their lives and invited me in. There was one elder at the church I grew up in who uh, I, was at a, I was at a park. They were playing a softball game. The church was playing a softball game, and I was there to watch. And this elder is up to bat, and he swings, and he crushes this ball. I mean, this thing, is, this thing is long gone. If there were fences, it would have gone over, but there weren't. So it just, it just goes far. And he's running to first, and this is clearly going to be a home run. And as he's making his way from first to second base, he starts to, to limp a little bit, and he starts to, to kind of trip over himself. And he, he kind of rounds second, and, and I was standing behind third base, so he's running from second to third, and so I see his face, and it's beat red, and he's like, it's, not a, it's a noticeable limp, and it's more of a hobble at this point. And about halfway between second and third base, he is now crawling and basically just kind of falls on third base. The ball comes in. It's actually a real close play at the plate, but he, he barely gets, touches third base, and is just kind of lying there 
something bad had happened, clearly. The, the play is done, and, and we kind of get him off to the side, and we help him walk over. I think he blew out his quad or his knee, I can't remember, but he, like, he couldn't put weight on his leg at this point. And we get him set up on a, ch- on a chair, and we put his, his leg up, and somebody's getting ice packs, and he's in immense pain, but he's like a dude, so he's just not letting anybody know it, but you can see it in his face, and you can hear it in his voice, but he's gripping, and he's, he's in extreme pain. And his son, one of his sons come over, came over, and at the time, his son was probably eight or nine, was totally oblivious to what was going on. He had been playing in a tree or something. And just came over and saw his dad and just came over and was, Dad, what are you doing? Dad, what's going on? Hey, did you see me flip? And he was just like around and just being an eight-year-old boy around his dad. And I watched this elder. I watched, I watched Mike just have patience. And, and I knew he was in immense pain. But he wasn't sharp. He wasn't, he wasn't short. He, wasn't, he didn't ignore or push away his son. He was just with him and just, just engaged with him as if nothing had happened. And I remember seeing that. And saying, man, that, that's the kind of dad that one day I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy who, who can just be present and, and love people, even when it hurt, even when he could have very easily pushed his son away and just asked for space. He was just with him and loved and cared for his son. Find people who you can see God working in them and then just go put yourself around them. Ask to be around them. Ask to engage with them. Ask to learn from them. It doesn't have to be a formal thing. Just say, hey, can I come over? Can I bring you a pizza and can we just hang out? Paul wants the elders to remember what he did as an example for them moving forward. To be genuine and to never shrink from the gospel. To walk with people in the hard places of life. Paul doesn't just try to instruct and encourage them from his past, though, because even in his present circumstances, there is something for them to learn. He talks about the past, but he also talks about the present and where he is right now. In verse 22, he says that he is constrained by the Spirit. He is dead set on getting to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. I think it's interesting. Pentecost has happened, we're like 25, 30 years from when Pentecost happened, when Acts 2 happened. And already in those 25 to 30 years, it has become a celebration of remembrance for the church. He says he is constrained by the Spirit. He is following what the Holy Spirit has told him and guided him towards. He expresses his own lack of knowledge about what awaits him. The only thing he does know that's coming is that what's waiting for him is imprisonment and and afflictions. He doesn't just assume that's coming. He isn't told by a mystic or some fake fortune teller. God tells him himself, Paul, here's what's coming for you as you move forward. Pain, affliction, imprisonment. He knows for sure that as he continues to Jerusalem and eventually Rome, it will not be easy. Which is saying something considering how much pain and infliction and imprisonment he has already endured, right? We saw the the one chapter where they take him outside the city and they stone him so badly they think he is dead. He's left for dead on the side of the road. And he picks himself up and he goes back to preaching the gospel. Paul has seen some stuff and experienced some stuff. And God says, there's only more of that coming. And so Paul had a choice. He could bail. He could walk away. He could give up and just stay put in one of these cities. He planted a church. He could stay in Ephesus. He could go back to Antioch. He could just hole up somewhere and live out his days as the local teacher and everybody would love him and take care of him. But that's not how Paul thinks. Verse 24, instead, his response to this news from the Holy Spirit is an acceptance and focus. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious. He isn't a masochist. He's not depressed or hate himself. Rather, Paul, like an accountant, what it said in one uh, commentary, Paul weighs out life before him. On one side of the scale would be a life of comfort, quiet and comfortable and free of affliction and imprisonment and hardship, one of ease. But if he were to follow that life, that life would also come with it the reality that he would be in rebellion against God and so then be the subject of God's discipline. Because on the other side of this scale is is Paul following the course and ministry that God had called him to, the purpose and plan that God had for him to testify to the gospel and the grace of God. But with that is going to come affliction and imprisonment. But when looking at these two sides with earthly eyes, in what makes the most sense from a logical human standpoint, we tend to shoot for the the quiet and the comfortable and the ease. But just because something is easy, just because something seems hashtag blessed, it does and it's comfortable, doesn't make it the best choice for us. 
Paul knew what was before him. Paul knew that in those afflictions, in those prison cells, he would not be alone, that the Holy Spirit would be with him and God would be glorified. And so when he weighs out the life and opportunities before him and he compares the quiet and the comfort combined with the rebellion against God's will because it's not what God had for him versus the affliction and the imprisonment, but ultimately the glorification of God and the proclamation of the kingdom of God, for Paul it is no contest. Paul's love and admiration and dedication to live his life for Christ superseded everything else. It is why he could write to the church in Philippi, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because for him, his view on life was, I live, I glorify God with every decision, with every interaction, and when needed, when my thoughts go astray, I take those captive and reorient those to glorify God. I am driven and led to make much of God always, and if along the way I lose my life, I get to go home and be with Christ, which is a gain for me. You see, we see already here in Acts 20, death is on Paul's mind already. He's thinking about finishing his course well, running the race and finishing well. That's his desire. With whatever time God allows him, he will run this life, run this race hard. He is full speed ahead. It's why he can say in verse 26 that he never shrunk from what was before him. He knew he gave every possible person every possible opportunity to hear the gospel and believe. He understood what we need to remind ourselves, that it is not our our responsibility to convert anyone, to save anyone. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. We share the gospel. We point people to Jesus, and we let the Holy Spirit do the work in their hearts. Paul says he's done that, and he will continue to until his race is over. Paul told them to remember how he lived and how he ministered among them so that they might do likewise. And here, he is still modeling in the present for them what it means to live by the Spirit, to be driven by the Spirit. As we engage with God's Word, as we get more in tune with the Holy Spirit and listen and pay attention to the Spirit's leading in our lives, at times we are going to be led into hard spots. We're going to be made uncomfortable and even face affliction in certain regards. It is in those seasons, in those moments where we will be served to be like Paul, to consider the sweetness of knowing God as far superior to anything in this world. When Paul later writes to these Ephesians, he will offer to them one of his prayers for them in Ephesians 3, that they may be be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul was rooted and grounded in love. Paul compared the breadth, length, width, height, depth of the love of Christ and compared it to the trials and tribulations he had already experienced and that which he knew was to come and still There was more value and worth in knowing Christ, in walking with Christ, in trusting Christ, in believing Jesus, in loving Jesus, in enjoying Jesus, in celebrating Jesus, and abiding in Jesus. There was far greater worth for him than in any suffering that he had or would experience. Paul trusted the Spirit's leading in his life, not that he didn't make plans. He did. He had plans to go to Jerusalem. He had plans to go to Rome. But he allowed the Spirit to alter those plans when needed. He knew that God knows what is best for us, and if we are willing to trust and listen and obey that leading, we will be led into what is best for us as well. I said elders in, this church, in, in the church get to experience very high highs and very low lows. Elders also, by nature, by the nature of being upfront, by being the ones who make decisions, who being the ones leading the way in churches, they suffer the slings and arrows of opposition and resentment and jealousy and betrayal. These things can come from any number of different places within and outside of the church. It is the role of the elder to be the first into spiritual battle, to lead the church, to be the front lines, to serve and prayfully protect those who they have been, led, they have been governed to lead. This role, by its nature, opens them up to spiritual attacks, ones that come head-on from outside of the church, and sometimes attacks that come from behind, from the very people they are asked to lead. I can say this with 
full confidence and honesty and from experience in a bunch of other churches and other leadership teams and other models that CF is blessed to have the men they do leading them into spiritual battle. By the nature of our church size and how we function and operate, many of you do not get to experience the full weight of passion, wisdom, care, and concern that our elders have for this church. I promise you no decision is ever made haphazardly, no pursuit is ever pursued without much prayer and consideration. I just saw it on display a couple of nights ago. It is a group of men who are humble enough to know when they don't know what the next step is, and instead of forging blindly ahead and possibly putting themselves, or more importantly, you at some kind of risk, they will slow down and prayerfully seek wisdom and discernment and ask for outside help and guidance. Again, I'm telling you, if you don't know them well, make it a point to know them well and to be known by them. A great way is Dave Rico is here every Saturday morning to lead us community group. He's here every Saturday morning, rain, snow, sleet, he's going to be here. And if nobody else shows up, he doesn't just pack it in and go home 10 minutes after. He stays and he prays for you. He stays and he prays for this church. He stays and prays for people he doesn't even know people who have yet to come through our church. You can come on a Saturday morning and learn and be known by one of the elders of this church. These are men in this church who have endured affliction and opposition because of the nature of their role. They have carried stresses and worries and concerns and pains on your behalf. They love you because they love Jesus. They serve you because they serve Jesus. They want to see you grow in your own spiritual walk because they have grown, because they themselves know of the sweetness of relationship with God and they want you to experience it as well. Paul uses his past to remind the elders how he served, how, and he uses his present to remind them to trust in the Spirit's leading, and he looks to the future to warn them about what is to come. He gives the leaders instructions on how to move forward. They have to figure out now how. How do we do this? How do we lead without our leader? In verse 28, he says, I want to just read it, not summarize it. Verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his blood. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Again, his first piece is character. Pay attention to your character and to the character and soul of those entrusted to you. Shepherd it, it says. Care for it. Feed it. That's why we do what we do. And everything we do in this church is grounded in the Bible and prayer. It's why we do things like memorize scriptures and devotionals and seasons of fasting and prayer. Because everything we do is going to be grounded in God's word. It's feeding. The job for us as leaders of the church is to make the food. To set the table and invite you to eat. To tell you why it's good. But we can't make you eat. I think I can speak for all of our elders as a whole and say that it is our hope and prayer that through being at this church for however long you are here, that you would come to know enough about God, both intellectually, but more importantly, experientially, that when you run into the trials and hardships of this world, you will have peace. You will know who God is, not just facts and figures about him, but know him intimately and trust and rest in him. But we also know, I know that we can't make that happen for you. We can offer you the food. We can invite you to come to the table and tell you why it's good and tell you why it's good for you. But your growth, your spiritual maturity is for you to grow into. It takes you having a relationship with God on your own, growing and knowing him more and more every day, moment by moment cultivating that relationship. And as you do, you will find just how trustworthy God is. We as leaders will do everything we possibly can to offer everything we possibly can to help make that happen. We echo Paul's words in to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul warns these Ephesian leaders that he knows how this is about to play out. In verse 29, he says, I'm going to leave you, and wolves will rise among you. Those seeking to hurt and destroy, those who share twisted things to draw away disciples. It's a similar warning that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There will be those who hear the gospel preached and don't like it, so they bounce from community to community, from church to church, from gathering to gathering, until they find the kind of place that tells them what they want to hear. It is the role and job of the shepherds to preach the gospel, and that's going to offend some people, and that's okay. Paul speaks about wolves among you, means not even just from within the church, but among the leaders, wolves will come. And so it is on the church to make noise, just as if we're going to go with this pastor analogy, if the the elders are the shepherds and the church is the flock, is the sheep, when a wolf enters into the herd, the sheep are going to start making noise. The sheep are going to alert the shepherd that something is wrong. There's like, there's one of me, there's four elders in this church, and there's like, 30 to 40 people in this church. I don't know, like 65 if you count Grace Place. There's kids getting added to that every week. As you engage and live and connect and commune and engage with one another and get to know one another, Paul says, pay attention. Be alert. If you hear or see something, if something doesn't add up, if there's someone leading, someone teaching, someone saying something that doesn't quite line up with Scripture, someone actively trying to hurt and twist the Word of God, say something, bring it to the elders' attention. Now, there's a difference between someone who's still learning and processing and someone who is actively trying to hurt, trying to deceive. Those things are different. And if someone is actively trying to hurt and deceive, then you bring it to the elders' attention. But to be alert, to pay attention, you got to know what you are alert for. Be alert for those who are trying to intentionally lead you astray or cause chaos and confusion. Paul's solution to this and where I want us to close is verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He knew he was leaving and he wouldn't see them again, that they couldn't count on his personal presence for wisdom and instruction. And so he reminds them that though he's going to be gone from them, they don't have him anymore. They still do have God. I commend you. I entrust you. I give you over. I leave you to God and his leadership. You have the Holy Spirit with you, Christian, to guide and lead and shepherd and comfort you. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there will be times of frustration and exhaustion. But know that your ability to endure and persevere is not based on whether or not your mentor is around, not based on whether or not you are smart enough, strong enough, or good enough, but rather it is based on whether or not you are willing to rest and trust in the power and purpose of God in you and for you and with you. Paul commends, he entrusts them to God and to the word of his grace. Our ability to connect with and speak with God is powerful and it is a privilege and it is good. And to go with that, the revelation of God in his word, the reading of God's word and engagement in prayer, these things go hand in hand. The fact that God would reveal himself to us like this is a grace. God and his word is in that alone that is able to build up, to truly strengthen and prepare us to endure our own sinful flesh and that of the world. It is a devotion and obedience to God and his word that leads those in Christ toward the inheritance through the progressive sanctification that God is creating in us. God making us more and more into his image and likeness. This is not something new. This is what Paul had been teaching them for three years. But now he's not there to hold their hand anymore. And so we must commit this. They have to commit to this on their own. Trusting God is with them. Trusting the word of God, if opened and if pursued, have the words of life in it. This is good leadership from Paul to these leaders. He wasn't going to micromanage them. He wasn't going to try and control them. All throughout this passage, even as he gives examples from his life, he doesn't say, here's the step-by-step process. Here's how to disciple someone. Here's how to raise up more leaders. He said, here's what I did. I lived. I taught. I worked. I loved. Do that. Be invested in people. Be led by the Spirit. And here now he says, I entrust you. And so you also entrust them to God and to his word. Trust that you can teach the word and it will do what it was made to do. Trust that God is at work and trust that the word is at work in their hearts. The bulk of my week is sermon prep, most weeks. And I I have the coolest role that I get to come up here every week and I get to open God's word and show you what God has showed me and teach you what God has been teaching me. And the hope is that it matters, that it has an effect, that the spirit uses it in some way. But I'll be honest, I have no idea. 
And sometimes, again, as church, I can be honest, it's an overwhelming reality that so much can go into a sermon and I have no idea how God's going to use it. I have to regularly remind myself, this is what I'm supposed to do and I have to entrust you to God and to the word of his grace. And it's hard for me to do that sometimes. This is, but this is where life change is going to come from. This is where growth and maturity are going to come from. It isn't about how good or bad of a sermon, how long or short, long of a sermon I preach. But rather, did I point you to Jesus, to the truth of God's word, and are you willing to respond? Not respond to me, but respond to God and what he's saying to you. And then from there, I get to walk off this stage and just trust God's doing something. So even that is me trying to grow in my own walk with God to trust that he's going to move. It's not about a building or a program or a class or a person that is going to be the thing that develops you into a mature, God-honoring, God-fearing, God-loving, Christ-proclaiming, spirit-led man or woman of God. It's him working in you. It's a daily commitment to you pursuing and trusting in him. Those other things, programs and classes, getting together, it's good. But ultimately, it is God and his grace that will build you and strengthen you and develop you. It's true for the leaders of the church, and it's true for everyone. It is not magic. It's not a trick. It is when we trust God and his word that we are built up and grow. The best thing that I or any elder can do is to help you understand the truth of God's word and then step back and let you walk and trust in that truth. We are always here to support and guide and walk alongside you, but ultimately we can't make you grow. That's between you and your relationship with God. The passage ends with a lot of tears because Paul loved them. It's why they weep and they're sorrowful because he loved them and they loved him because they're invested in one another's lives. I constantly pray that it is said and felt of us as a people that we love God and love one another deeply. Again, I'm going to speak for the elders. We love you. To serve as an elder is a serious role with serious responsibility and weight that comes from it. I beg you, if you don't already do it, pray for your elders. Pray for your future elders. Pray for people who don't even know they're going to be an elder yet. Pray for them. It's a weighty role. But the joy of serving Christ, the joy of glorifying him, the joy of helping others know him deeper and see him clearer and experience him fuller, it is a grace and blessing beyond words. I don't say it enough. Thank you. Thank you for letting me serve in this role. And I pray that as I and your current and any future elders that come into this church serve you, I pray that we would do it with humility and integrity, ever and always pointing you to the author and perfecter of our faith, the perfect shepherd, the good shepherd, the one who saves, the one who made us and knows us and loves us so much that he came to earth to die for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, that is the role and job of the elders to point all of us to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for so many things. We thank you for being the God of relationships. That you have eternally been within relationship within yourself and you have created us as a people to be made for relationships, to be made for community to be made to engage with one another, to live together, to lift one another up, to hold one another up. You're also the God of order. There is no chaos and confusion, not in your perfect design. And part of that order, part of that deliberateness and intentionality is you have set up people to, le to lead as leaders in your church, to shepherd and to love and lead and care and provide and protect. God, help those of us who are in that role. God, I pray for Dave and for Wayne and for Daniel that you would protect them and watch over them, that you would give them wisdom and discernment and patience. God, I pray for the pastors and elders around our city, around our country, around the world. God, you have raised up 
people to serve in that role, to lead. Help all of us to keep our eyes and our hearts focused on you, fixated on you, running our race toward you, with you being the finish line, you being the thing that we are running toward. God, help our church to grow together, to grow in knowing you deeper, experiencing you more and more. Lord, I pray for those who, even in this moment, don't think they could or should be an elder, that 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 idea has never even crossed their mind, that even right now it's not on their minds. Lord, I pray for those people, but you have a plan for those who might not know it yet but are one day going to step into this role. God, I pray that you would protect them. I pray that as they experience the highs and the lows of leadership, God, that you would watch over them and that they would get to enjoy the great joy of, of getting to walk alongside your people, to lead your people and to love your people and to point them to you. God, ultimately, if, if what we're doing is just trying to gain numbers, just trying to gain popularity and influence, it's going to fail, it's going to fall apart. But if what we are doing, if what we are driven by is to know you, is to be more Christ-like and proclaim Christ, to make much of you with every turn and every interaction and every thought, you will be glorified and more and more people will come to know the goodness of you. God, I pray that as we lead this church, you would help us to set the example on how to pursue you and that we as a body would be able to be known as people who love God and love one another. And through that love, we would be the lights of the world you have made us to be. We praise you and thank you. Amen.